the children's church. For the rest of you, let's open up our Bibles. Somebody get the light, please. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. So let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And we are going to read verses 1 to 12 of Matthew 3. This is God's holy word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon our time. Father, we come before you right now, and as we uh, consider uh, the example, as we consider the message of John the Baptist, uh, we ask, God, that you would bring conviction. Lord, that we would see somebody not as a, a unique Uh, only as a unique uh, person in redemptive history, but somebody who really uh, showed what it looked like to put faith into action. We pray that we would make uh, a difference in your kingdom uh, like John did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I, I think it's fair to say the average person knowingly or unknowingly in some capacity, lives for the approval of man. I mean, kind of basically saying most people want to be liked. Uh, 1936, Dale Carnegie put a book out. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's been a huge success. Over 30 million copies sold. I I think 10 to 15 of the 30 million have happened in the last 10 to 15 years. Because there's this desire, like, you know, how can I win friends? How can I influence people? How can people uh, like me? We, we consider social media. Most people go onto social media because they want to be liked. That's a, I, I don't think they, most of them have an unliked button. They have likes button. And you have followers. We even talk about in social media, the world, that there are some people that their job, their career is to be an influencer. I mean, we, we want to be liked. Uh, when you were growing up and it was yearbook time, they didn't even usually have the category most unpopular. 
how was your high school experience? Really good. I was the most unliked kid in our school two years in a row. So, I mean, not everybody could say that. No, we don't think that way. I think we want to be wanted, we love to be loved, and we don't enjoy being despised and rejected by men. Yet, God has commissioned you and I as followers of Christ to proclaim an unpopular message to a dying world. The call to follow Jesus is going to come with the rejection of man. Being faithful to the gospel and being beloved by the world, I know there's going to be some rare exceptions to this, are usually not compatible. We have a choice. We either are going to honor Christ or you're going to honor the world. And what we see with John the Baptist, we see somebody that is faithful in the midst of opposition. He lives this life of unpopularity. He's really kind of setting a pattern for us as Christians of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, we're, if you're taking notes, real simple breakdown of the passage. We're going to look at the man we're going to unpack who John was, what we know about him, what we can learn from him. And then secondly, we're going to unpack the message. We're going to consider uh, the, 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 basically the, the content, the composition of his preaching. So let's begin as we look at the man. Now, if you were here last week, we considered typology and we saw uh, Jesus uh, in the midst of Old Testament where it kind of pointed ahead that we saw shadows and Jesus was the reality. And the last one we saw, though, was this promise that this Messiah was not going to be like you expected. That he came from Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel said about Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And sure enough, the Messiah came from that. So we saw right there that Jesus was going to be one that was going to be opposed, that was going to be disliked, that was going to be despised. And right now we get into chapter 3, we see another man cut in the mold of Jesus, John the Baptist. And Jesus himself said, there is no one born of a woman that is greater. Uh, Not obviously including Jesus. So uh, with the man— Uh, First of all, I want us to see that he had a holy calling. He had a holy calling. Read verse 1 with me. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We need to understand, John the Baptist plays a very unique role in redemptive history. Uh, What do we know about John the Baptist? He had a supernatural birth story. If you recall, you can look later, Luke chapter 1 in Luke, uh, Zechariah, his dad was a priest. They were faithful, him and his wife Elizabeth. They were godly, they loved the Lord, and they were without a child. She was barren. And it wasn't just that they were barren, they were old. So they had reached a point where it was highly unlikely, very improbable for them to ever have a child at this point in their life. So an angel appears to Zechariah and says, hey, your wife's going to have a baby. And he's second guessing, like, how is this going to happen? 
you know, we're old. And, and he said, because I'm an angel of the Lord. God said this. Because you don't believe, Zechariah instantly became a mute. Did not talk from that point until the birth of John. So he's got this unique role, but it's not just unique in that sense. He's got a very uh, important relative. Luke one thirty six says this. And this was Mary going to visit John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So now we see a, a connecting point between Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, they're related in, in some capacity uh, as much as he can be as the eternal son of God, uh, born of a, a virgin. But there's a, a relationship there. John is about six months old older in that regard. And what we see next in John, as you go on to Luke, is he lives in obscurity in the wilderness until he comes on the scene in uh, the, the gospel. So he's God-picked, but not just that he's God-picked, he is God-promised. We see right here, it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, that God promised, I'm going to send one before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then it goes on in verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. All right, what's going on? Why is John dressed so weird? Is he starting a clothing line? Is John branding, right? Is he start, Is that the deal? I mean, we've seen, if you've ever seen clips from fashion shows in New York, like it is, let's just be candid, it's ridiculous what is considered fashion in the world today. Like people wearing a hula hoop and that's fashion and just wild. It was, it's John trying to kind of get in the scene at the, the supermodel clubs. No, that's not what he's doing. Nor is he on a fad diet. Like you know how to lose weight? Locusts, honey. That's it. That's all I do. And boom, like I have trimmed down so much because I gag every time I eat the locusts. No, it, it, what he's doing, and we need to understand, there's a very clear parallel of what's going on. Malachi 4.5, it declares, and this is a promise, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, when God's people heard that prophecy, because Elijah went up in, in a, a chariot of fire, he didn't die. Their assumption was Elijah, actual Elijah, was going to return. Luke 1.17, when the angel is speaking to Zechariah, he promises this, that he will come in the spirit of, guess whose name? Elijah, and the power of Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8, a little tidbit about fashion uh, savviness of Elijah. He wore a garment of, guess what? Hair, with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So what we see in the dress attire is that John is in the mold of Elijah. He's not literally Elijah, but he's in the spirit of 
Elijah. Matthew eleven thirteen to 14, prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So he's God-picked, he's God-promised, and then he was God-purposed. Notice what it says, he came to prepare the way for the Lord. This is not unusual for somebody to send somebody ahead to prepare the way. Trust me, whatever president is sitting as is, is president, when they go somewhere, they don't wing it. You understand that? They don't just show up like, hey, we're going to Toledo tomorrow, and then they show up in Toledo and kind of figure it out. No, they send, in the context of a president, they'll send teams weeks in advance. They'll work on security and the, the agenda, and they'll be background checking. It's just, it's such an exhaustive way to prepare the way for that leader to come. And what God promised with John, this person that would come, is that he would prepare the way. Malachi 4, 6, it says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. We need to remember there was a long season, a long period of silence from God with regards between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during that time, they, they kind of felt abandoned, like, is, where's God in the midst of everything? And when John comes on the scene, it was God saying, I'm not done with you. It's the time. Notice the, the language, it says, the kingdom of heaven, synonymous, and we'll look a lot of this as we go through Matthew with the kingdom of God. It's the idea that God is ruling and reigning in the hearts of, of man because of Christ, and the timing is here. It's, it's today. So he's preparing them that it's, it's the wake-up call. It's, it's the person blowing the, the trumpet. Da -da -da -da. Hey, everybody, may I have your attention? The Messiah, he's, he's on the scene. He is a-coming. So do you see the uniqueness of John? Do you see uh, that he was preparing the way for the return of Jesus? And then ultimately, are you and I kind of a side note as followers of Christ? Are you preparing the way for his return? Now, we're not all John the Baptist, so please don't misunderstand what I'm, I'm saying. But one of our chief responsibilities— and callings as a follower of the Lord is to prepare the way of the Lord's return. Well, are you doing that? So we see the holy calling, but second, he has an honest confession. Read verse 2 with me. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Read verse 7 with me. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to care. First of all, notice his boldness. John the Baptist, hands down, one of my most favorite characters in the Bible. And I think part of it because he, he is so courageous, so bold in a ways at times that I'm just not. So he's somebody to be inspired by, to be encouraged. He is not afraid to step on toes. He's not afraid to rock the boat. 
He tells the masses, we're going to look a little bit of the message of repentance, but he's not afraid to tell people to uh, repent. I mean, think about that. Do you think John the Baptist would get hired by Hallmark to make greeting cards? That'd be an interesting greeting card, would it not? No, he's, he's kind of intense. I mean, you and I would kind of, we would tell him to kind of turn it down a notch. He's, he, he's so forthright. He's the person, if he is an itinerant speaker in our culture, like speaking on college campuses, he's getting protests. He's getting people picketing. And yet he, he, he's willing to do this uh, with, with such courage under fire. We see the Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't want to spend a ton of time thinking of them, but they were religious leaders at the time. It, it's weird. They are very weird friends because they're not friends. Pharisees were very legalistic. Sadducees were more compromisers. But both of them were friends because they were threatened by Jesus and they were threatened by John. And they were powerful in the Jewish world. Those were the people you wanted to be friends with because they, they pulled the strings in the culture in that area. So you didn't want to be on the bad side. And there's John, no qualms, speaking truth into them. Notice first of all what he calls them. He calls them a brood of vipers. So vipers, they're a smaller snake in the desert, okay? They're notorious though for being dangerous because you don't know they're a snake. Acts 28, you can look at later. Paul was stung by a viper when he was getting wood together for a fire. What will happen is They'll, they'll remain still, and they will actually blend into the area to the point that they'll look like a dead stick. So you go to pick up this dead stick. It's not dead. It bites you. And what he is saying to them, being brood of vipers, he's challenging them that you are dangerous, that your convictions are dangerous, what you believe and teach are dangerous, that you are, you are life-threatening to our culture, to our community, and he's willing to call them out. And what they thought was they were safe because they were, mar- they were genetically, they were uh, Jewish. They thought they were, they were safe. Kind of in today's world, what I thought of that would be comparable is diplomatic immunity. Uh, when our, we have like diplomatic immunity for people in our country and certain like uh, consulates and, and places to where like they cannot, uh, a great example is tra- uh, traffic and driving violations. They can park wherever they want and they can get a hundred tickets. And the only thing they have to say is diplomatic immunity. And what we see with the Pharisees and Sadducees is they thought they had this spiritual diplomatic immunity. Because they were Jewish, they thought they had their ticket already printed to heaven. They had their pass. They, they got the Cedar Point easy pass or quick pass. Like, oh, we're good. We're, we're, we're Jews. And he calls them out and says, you have no standing before God based upon what blood is, is, is piercing through your, flowing through your skin. What you're standing before God is based on faith. It's based on, on trusting in the gospel and, and Christ. And I think what we see in his courage and his boldness is what Proverbs 27, 5 declares. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. There's a courage as he's led by the Spirit. He's willing to say 
what needs to be said. Paul even prayed for this, Ephesians 6, 19. He said, pray for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So I have to ask, and I have to look in the mirror when I ask this, how bold are you to speak truth in love in our world that we live? How courageous are you to speak? I mean, look at our world and our society and our culture. We celebrate sin. What is this month? It's June. It's Pride Month. Are you willing to speak truth in love? Are you willing to say a sin is sin? Are you willing? And I'm not saying you do this divorced from the gospel, divorced from from grace and, and mercy, but I think we live in a culture where we are so afraid of offending. So afraid. We want the we want the world to love us, and the only way we can do that effectively is to water down our message. And John had nothing to do with that. He was bold. He was courageous. But not only was he bold, he was humble. He's not impressed with himself. Notice what he says. I am unworthy to carry the sandals. We need to understand you and I, when we, when we wear sandals, 2023, Northwest Ohio, a lot of times it's a fashion statement. Uh, most of you all in your sandal wearing is not walking over ground that's constantly has animals all over. You know, understand? And animals do stuff outside. They're, most animals are not potty trained, right? So it's a dirty and it's a dusty area in Israel. So you got to think it was filthy. So cleaning sandals and cleaning people's feet, that was the lowest of low jobs for uh, slaves, And John had such a perspective. And remember, what did Jesus say about John? There is no one who is greater, born of a woman, than John. And yet John, when he looked at Jesus, he saw the gap that was so far that I'm not even worthy to do the job of a slave, the lowest of slaves. And I think that's important because we live in a, a time where we love ourselves. We have egos, right? successful people. Like, you you know you're arrogant and cocky if you speak in third person. So Joe says. No, we we do, and there's there's this humility. It blows my mind with John. Another part of John that is just so refreshing. He's just so humble. Uh, If you were calling John the Gospel of John, Jesus, uh, John's disciples are watching everybody start to follow Jesus, and they're freaking out. They're like, John, like, we're losing market share. They're following him. Like, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to try to do an ad campaign? You know, try to compete with Jesus? And, and, and John's like, what are you talking about? I'm so excited he's here. And he says these words, he must increase, but I, and I must decrease. Same thing was happening with Paul. You got Apollos doing this, Peter doing this, and everybody's like, you know, where, where are you kind of on the pecking order, and don't you want to be the most popular? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, 
Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. How humble are you? How willing are you to do the jobs that nobody wants to do? How, how, how much do you look and, and say, you know, I'm okay being in the background, God. I'm just excited that I get to be a part of your team. Or is it about you? Does everything revolve around you? I think, I think that's probably one of the big challenges as a parent is our kids are growing up in this world where it says everything is about you and you and you. And we have to parent in a way that say it's actually about Jesus. And we have to try to foster a humility within our children. But let's be candid parents. You and I, we struggle with the self-absorbedness as much as our children. Because we do, we make it about us. So do we have that humility? So we see the man, he's this holy calling, this honest confession. Let's now look at the message. What was central to John's sermons? Component number one, you need to repent. Verse two, he's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse six, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this confession and repentance thing going on. First part of his preaching was real change must take place place. Uh, who here has ever played the game with their kids or family or friends? Taboo. Anybody? Raise your hand if you've played Taboo. Give you an example of Taboo. Taboo, you have a card, and on the card will be something that you're trying to get people to say, like a, like a category. Uh, let's say it's a boat, but you can't say boat. You can't say ship. You can't say watercraft. So you got to figure out a way to say it without saying it. And, and it's, it can be very frustrating. It can lead to some tears by me. And you're yelling and you're, you're frustrated. And, and, cause you're, and, and the best part is somebody has a buzzer to buzz you as soon as you say the word. So you start to say, ship. And then, you, and then you have to move on to the next car. I, I, I think here's what I've noticed taking place amongst God's people and in the church is it's like we're playing taboo in our world when it comes to things like repentance and sin. We want to say it, but we know we can't, we can't say it. So we're going to, we kind of, Beat around the bush and say, yeah, it's kind of like disobedience and, you know, not, not doing what God wants you to do. But like, you can't say, can't say the word. You can't say something is sin. You can't tell somebody to repent. Because the moment we say repent, instantly we see a guy in the street corner with a sign who is fire and brimstone, right? That's when we think repent, that's it. So because of that, we don't want to be a wacko like that guy. So we just won't say that word. And you see, there was no hesitation to say repentance from John. I would argue as you go through the gospel, repent. Jesus said it often. Mark 1.15, kingdom of heaven is, kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Book of Acts, almost every sermon in the book of Acts, guess what word was included in it? Repent. 
Revelation, seven letters, five of the seven letters were rebukes. And guess what word was used, everybody? Repent. And yet you and I, we, we don't talk about it. Well, what is repentance? It's the idea of going in one direction and turning about face and heading in another direction. A great example of it illustrated for us is in the story of Jonah. Jonah is called by God to go to where? Nineveh. So he's supposed to go to Nineveh, and there's this place over here called Tarshish, which is like the opposite direction of Nineveh. Where does Jonah go? Tarshish. Ends up getting swallowed by a large fish, whale, debate of what it was. Once he comes out and he repents, guess what direction he goes? To Nineveh. He truly repents. That's what repentance looks like. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. He goes on and says, In these two you once walked, but you, when you were living in them. So what repentance looks like is all those sins, you put them to death, you stop going in that direction, and you start going in the right direction. It includes conviction of sins. It includes stopping the sin. And it's also a change of thinking about the sin that leads to a right desire in doing. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But it's not just the change element. Real confession must happen. Real confession. He talked about how he was baptizing by him, baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. We'll talk more about baptism next week. But the timing is God's kingdom is here. Now you have a choice to make and to repent. You confess before God your sin. We, we see this with criminals sometimes. They, they get brought into the, the police station and they end up doing, sometimes, not always, they'll confess their crime. Maybe there's a deal in play if they confess. They'll even write down the details of the crime. Whatever the case is, there's this acknowledgement that I did wrong. I did it. I'm owning it. It was me. And what repentance includes is you and I owning our sin and saying, God, what I've done is wrong. I've sinned against you. I have disobeyed your word. Psalm 32 verse 5, listen. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is crucial to the message that you and I proclaim. Repentance, confession of sin, admitting that we need a savior, not that we have some problems, not that we're, we're, we're not really perfect. It's that we're spiritually dead and we're defiant. We're slaves to sin and we need a Savior. Why are you repenting daily? I mean, that's the beauty of this. We see John in the moment is preaching about like this initial repentance, an initial turning. But really, every day of our life is a day of repenting. It is 1052. Until you go to bed, guess what? Whole lot of opportunity to repent. Because I also know there's going to be a whole lot of sin today. 
just is in our thoughts and our actions and our, our conversations, like whatever it is. So you confess, we, we, we rest in the mercy and grace found in Jesus Christ, but we also repent and say, yeah, I'm going to stop doing it. Because what ends up happening often in our life when we talk about repentance is we don't repent. We confess because we feel bad. It looks good that we apologize, but then we do it again. And then we do it again. And then we just keep on doing that sin. And if somebody is the victim of your sin, it doesn't seem like you're very sincere about repentance. So repentance is like, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done going in this direction. How about confessing? When's the last time you confessed sin before God? Think about it. I, I, I really, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. Kennedy, don't tell me what your last sin was. No, no. but like, I, literally, I want you in this moment sitting here, I want you to, to think, when's the last time I confessed my sin before God? Like, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had those thoughts. I'm sorry I, I said such a horrible thing to that individual. I'm sorry I did it. That's, that's the Christian life. That's something that should be ongoing with you and I. But not only do we, component number one is you need to repent. Component number two is you need to reap. Notice what he says. He draws a lot of attention to this. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Verse 12, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we need to reap, which means you and I should bear fruit. So let's imagine you go to one of the local nurseries, uh, garden places, and you buy a fruit tree. You plant the fruit tree. Years come and go, and you never see fruit from that fruit tree. Who here is questioning that you bought a fruit tree? Why? Why are you questioning? What would you expect from that tree? It's a fruit tree. So what do fruit trees produce? Fruit. You buy an apple tree. What do you expect to see eventually from the apple tree? Apples. And see, what, what the Bible teaches about Christians is that we are like a Christian fruit tree. That we bear fruit. That's what we do. James warned us about this. James 2.26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. That does not mean that your works, your fruit, save you. But it is evidence that you are saved. Do you understand the difference? Fruit is expected. It is not optional. And what John is warning is there are way too many of people out there that are fruitless. No evidence that they know Jesus. No evidence that they walk with the Lord but they prayed a prayer. They went down on an altar call. That's it. Like that's the lone thing. They checked the box. So therefore, and, and what John is warning is like, no, that's not, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is life altering. It will bear fruit. But the other problem with fruit bearing, because you and I hear that and, and I say, so you need to be bearing fruit. 
Here's the catch. You can't bear fruit on your own. So this isn't a matter of you need to go home like, man, I need to really uh, work harder and then I'll be more fruitful. No, it, it, that was life altering to me, to be honest with you. And I was in college because when I was in college and I, I came to walk with the Lord and I, and I saw even the fruit of the spirit, it says fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I was like, all right, I want that to be evident in my life. So like one of the ones that I was probably least naturally fruitful for was patience. So I was like, I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be the most patient person in crusade. And I could do that for about an hour. And then I dealt with other crusaders. And they would test my patience. And I was, just, I was trying so hard. But then when somebody sat me down and said, Joe, you're looking at this all wrong. That's not, that's not how you do it. And he, and he, pointing me to John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And for me, that was, it relieved me. Took away a huge burden. Friends, as you walk close with Jesus, He's going to bear fruit in you. Fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce it in you. But our concern should be when we don't see the fruit. Because I think if, we, if, if you don't, have you ever had to go back to try to find where the, 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 the problem was? Think Christmas lights where you keep going through the bulbs. Which one is out causing all of them to be out? And you kind of go back to the source. And what we see is if you start noticing a lack of fruit in your life, I think when you go back to the source, what you're going to see is the lack of abiding in Christ. You're not walking close with Jesus. But that's the hope. And, he, and John's challenging. He's pushing them on that. Are you bearing fruit? So I ask, are you? Is there evidence? If I ask your friends, if I ask your family members, your coworkers, do they see an abundance of spiritual fruit in their life, in your life? Because I think we've lowered the bar way too low. I think especially young people, I'm, I'm feeling old when I say young people, but the high school and college age kids, I, I think I've, I've watched, I'm seeing it, and there's just, there's just not that much evident fruit when I'm around those individuals often. There's just, the, the kids that are fruit bearing, they stand out so much compared to the next. And God, God wants you to bear fruit, young people. Like, be the example. Don't you remember Paul's words to Timothy? Set an example. Don't let him look down on you because you're old. It doesn't matter how old you are. Be the example. But not only should you bear fruit, and here's, here's the catch. Or beware of wrath. Notice the language. There's no sugarcoating what he says who rescued you from the wrath, to flee from the wrath to come. He goes on and says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. This is a warning sign. I came across a, a list of warning signs uh, this past week online as I was preparing. First one was a lake that uh, had a lot of drownings. And on the sign, it said, uh, wear a life jacket had like 171 drownings, and it said 167 without life jackets. So 
wear life jackets was the warning. Another one was a trail on a hike. And on the hike, it, it said, you basically to the next spot, seven hours, there's no turning back. Like, it's, it's telling you, really don't do this hike. It just, there's so many things. If you're short on food, this is brutal. You're going to regret, and you're, there's no stopping. Seven hours. And then the other one was, it was at a pond, and it says, if you fall in this pond, you will be boiled. So that one, I would have been a little bit terrified to, to be near. Talk about a warning sign for you and I. That if you don't bear fruit, you should fear God's wrath. You should fear hell. Because that's the language, the fire, right? Matthew 13, 41, we'll look at later. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is a loving thing to warn the condemned. If you didn't know Jesus and you hear this message and you are coming to the realization that as of now, my life is going on the trajectory to hell, wouldn't you want somebody to warn you about this? Wouldn't you want somebody to be bold and courageous and loving enough to have that awkward conversation for you? Because friends, there really is a hell. Do you understand that, right? It's for real. It's not some little legend or fable that we tell people to, to use to kind of fear monger them into Jesus. No, it is a, a real truth. If Jesus had to die, it was because if he didn't die, there was eternal consequences awaiting those who did not know him. Or are you warning those in harm's way? Are you mindful of it? Think about it. I caught myself. I was walking. I've started a new discipline. One, because I just, being in an office sometimes, my brain just uh, needs a break. I started walking the back path, like a prayer walk. And, and as I was walking this past week, it was really hot. And I looked over, and there's a new, the, in the last year, they put a new pickleball uh, courts out there. It's beautiful. Uh, it's really nice. And there was a lot of, of primarily older people playing pickleball. But as I was walking by and as I've been preparing this week, I couldn't help but think, how many of those people right there? Let's just play the numbers. They're older. Realistically, they're probably closer to their end than if I was looking at a group of 30-year-olds. How many of them are prepared for the wrath to come? How many of them are bearing fruit that's consistent with repentance? And maybe that day, maybe everybody out there was a believer. I hope so. I pray. But I, I, what I, I felt so convicted by is how often I don't think like that. When the kid drove by me as I was pulling a trailer yesterday, beeping at me, I did not think of 
where his spiritual standing is. I, I did not. I thought of a lot of other things. I just, I don't. Like in the daily grind, people often are inconveniences and, and hindrances and, and people that you have to deal with when every single person in this room is an eternal soul. Every single person that you interact with has an eternal destination. Are you warning of them? Of what lies ahead for those that don't know Christ? Uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of years since they've begun doing it, but Gallup uh, conducts presidential approval ratings. Uh, presidential approval ratings. And they ask them throughout presidencies. Uh, ask citizens what kind of job the president's doing. In essence, you're asking, do you like this president? Highest approval rating ever in a particular moment in a presidency. Anybody have a guess who the president was? Anybody? Bush. George W. Bush, after September 11th, 90% approval rating. So 90 out of 100 people Thumbs up, you're doing a good job. Lowest approval rating ever, February 1952, Harry Truman, 22%. So 78 out of 100 people said, this guy's a joke. He's doing a terrible job. Uh, when presidents leave, they usually do an approval rating. I, I think the highest one ever after their presidency was Bill Clinton, he was at 66%. But even that high 66%, that means 34 out of the 100 people said, you're terrible. And what we see kind of in this is it's difficult to win the approval of man. I mean, we want to be wanted. We love to be loved, and we don't like being not liked. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of times life is filled with us not being liked. And it, I think it's exasperated when you and I, as Christians, are called to proclaim an unpopular message to a dying world. There's no way to sugarcoat it. No way to dress it up and make it less offensive. Consequently, the call to follow Christ comes with rejection and opposition. Being faithful to the gospel, being loved by the world, not compatible. So if we're doing Christian approval ratings— you're probably going to have some low numbers. And that is something we don't like, right? Like, what can I do to up my ratings? Free money, right? So we have a choice. I think as followers, do we honor Christ? Do we honor the world? Because the stakes are high. We're talking heaven, hell, eternity, are you going to follow in the footsteps of John and make much of Christ? And here's the, the beauty of it. When we, when we live like that, we actually do get the approval of someone. It's God. And that's the approval that matters most, right? So let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now. We uh, thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for uh, the gospel. We thank you for John and his faithfulness. We just pray, God, that we would be people who are willing to say uh, words that need to be said, that we would speak of sin and repentance, and that we would call people to Christ. We pray for anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus, that they might turn to the Lord 
And we pray, God, that you would help us in our unbelief, in our fear, in our anxiety, that you would empower us to make a difference for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. As we-